Hello and welcome everybody to a new series with an interview uh, with Andronicus here. Uh, he is part of the School of Life, which I'm involved with, and he recently published a book, and so uh, we decided that it'd be fun to chat about that and kind of his uh, views. The book is on the Iliad, and so that is what we will be discussing. Um, so welcome. How has your day been? Not too bad, not too bad. How's your day going? It's going fantastic. It's a good Monday. Um, so I guess the first question I have is, uh, how did you come to, uh, your current list of the classics and, uh, and why, why choose the Iliad, uh, to, as the book to start reading as your, your overall goals? Yeah. Um, so it started, it started about four or five years ago, uh, just really wanting to read the classics and I didn't quite know where to start, um, and so I had heard about a book uh, called How to Read a Book by Mortimer Adler. And I decided to, I decided to get it and, and read it, see if I can improve like my reading comprehension and, uh, and get a better sense of like classical education and, and, um, and just how to be like a, a, a more educated person. And, I saw in the back of his book, there was a list of classics that he recommended everybody read. I'm like, okay, cool. I'll, I'll just follow this list then. And the first book on the list was the Iliad or the first, first author rather was Homer. So, you know, the Iliad was first and then the Odyssey right after that. And so, uh, I, so I started, so I just, I started reading the Iliad and, um, and then I read the Odyssey and, on that list, I ended up reading uh, several authors. I read uh, Homer and Aeschylus and Sophocles and Euripides and Herodotus, the you know the father of history, and Thucydides and Hippocrates, the father of medicine, modern medicine. And I read Plato. I read his complete works, and then I got to Aristotle, and I read his um, Organon, which is his six books on logic. And the translation I had, it was about 300 pages and I got to the end of it and I realized that I had barely remembered or understood anything that I read. And uh, it bothered me a lot. And so I tried, you know, reading some of them again. I tried just, you know, well, maybe I'll just move on to his other works and maybe I'll just kind of sink in and it didn't. And eventually, I gave up on the list, and uh, I I'm I still thought about it, and I didn't want to I didn't want to completely give it up. And so what I ended up doing was expanding the list. Uh, so Warner Adler's How to Read a Book. There was an original version, and then there was a revised version, and that he did in like the 1970s. I think it was like 1972. And the list in that book was different. And so I combined those two lists together. And then um, I added in books that were found in a, a series that he edited called Great Books of the Western World. And so I took works that were in there that were not found in the two lists for how to read a book and added that. And then I found out he edited another volume called Gateway to the Great Books. And so I added in the works that were in there. So. By the time I was all done, it was like 272 authors I had on this list. And um, I'm like, someday I want to get to this list. 
and uh, and I'm going to take it a step further, and I want to be able to, you know, take good notes, and I want to be able to write about them, and uh, and maybe even like share it on the internet. And it, and at first I was thinking about like video content, like I was going to make YouTube videos or something, and it was just just getting to be too much. Like I find I I started to understand. Uh, why content creators hire video editors and the like because it was like I, you know I, I remember like trying to make a a video and I spent like three hours on like the first like 10 minutes of an audio recording just you know trying to add visuals and trying to make it all line up I'm like I this is this is going to take forever to finish so um anyway uh fast forward to last year when um the school of life program started and um i decided i wanted to make this blog like reading oh you know writing about the classics like my big project i wanted to be able to uh, do it and monetize it and um and this would be kind of like my my lifelong project and I wanted, uh, and also like in a, a means to to utilize the education that I got, because uh, I went to school to be a teacher, and um, I wasn't able to become a teacher for different reasons. And so I figured this, you know, doing this blog is kind of the next best thing. Um, so, so yeah. So anyway, long story short, that's that's how I that's how I came across the list, and that's why I started with the Iliad. That, that's awesome. I uh, noticed you started pretty heavily with the Greeks. Is there a reason that you kind of dove into the Greeks uh, first? I just just because they were first on the list. Um, well, technically, like uh, so, like Adler, he has you start with Homer, and then he goes right to the Old Testament. Hmm. And I had, I had conflicting feelings about that. Like uh, on the one hand, it'd be like, oh, it'd be great to go through the Old Testament. On the other hand. Uh, I didn't want to be like, you know, I didn't want to like turn people away. Like, oh, he's just turning this into some, you know, religious screed or something like that. So, uh, and I also figured, I, I, I thought it would be kind of fun to get through the Greeks. And then immediately after that, I'm going to go through the Old Testament. And so then I can compare, like, this is what the Greeks thought compared to this is what the Hebrews thought. And you know, here's their worldview, and here's their worldview, and um, and compare and contrast them, and uh, and 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 see where that goes. I I think that would be uh, really really fun. You know, what what things do they have in common? What what ways are they different? And and the like. So, um, but uh, but yeah, um, if I was going with like earliest civilization, you know, I would have started with the Sumerians and uh, and the Mesopotamians and the like, but they There's not many works by them left anymore, right? Yeah, there a lot. I mean, they, we have we do have a lot of stories on them. I mean, like obviously, like the big ones, like the Epic of Gilgamesh, mm -hmm. uh, and also like their creation account, the Enuma Elish, and then um, some various different stories, but they aren't technically like Western civilization. Like maybe they built like the bedrock of civilization, but they're not technically Western civilization. And Adler had kind of like a really strict rule. He just wanted to stick with Western, like stuff in the Western canon. Cause he's like stuff from the East 
and I don't know why the Old Testament is an exception to this, uh, maybe because of how much it's been adopted by the West, but um, stuff from the East has to be approached differently than how you approach stuff in the Western canon. So, uh, so he was pretty strict on that. So, you know, he didn't include like anything by Confucius or Sun Tzu or, okay. uh, or, you know, like any of the, you know, like I said, the Sumerians and Mesopotamians and, um, you know, like any, any of the, any other classics in you know, Chinese literature or Indian literature or, uh, you know, Japanese, um, or African literature for that matter. So did the Quran make the, the cut? Uh, no, the Quran didn't make the cut. Okay. So that's probably, that's probably also why. And then again, I mean, like uh, he published his book in the forties, like the Quran. I mean, I, I mean, I don't know a whole lot about modern history, but I, I'm, a, I'm guessing the Quran wasn't that much of a big deal in the 1940s compared to today, uh, compared to like the last 20 years. So, yeah. Oh, I ran across a list of like a hundred books that every man should read or whatever. Um, and it was like from the 1800s and they had the Quran in there. So I wasn't sure. Oh, if, interesting. Yeah. Uh, I don't remember who uh, published that, but what, what drew you to uh, Adler um, as like kind of a source of inspiration? He's, uh, he's known in like the, the classical education circles. Uh, so I was, I was studying classical education as part of, while I was going to the teaching program, I wanted to know like, what does classical education say? And, um, and so uh, I, one of the big, one of the big people, particularly in the Christian classical education is, is uh, Douglas Wilson. He's a pastor in Idaho, very well read. Um, and he, was the one that talked a lot about Adler. I read one of his, I like, I read one of his books on, on classical education. And he's basically like, you know, Adler, this, how to read a book, it has to be like standard reading for anyone that wants to, you know, wants to become a better educated person. You, you there's a lot of techniques and, and uh, like just giving you like a basic grasp and understanding of how to how to read a book how to you know how to grasp concepts that you get from a book and and stuff like that so that's what that's where it started that's where i first heard about adler and then it just kind of remained in the back of my mind and eventually i just remembered him and bought a bought his book so how did so, uh reading his book kind of change how how you read things He, I would say one of the biggest is kind of a change in mentality. Uh, his argument is, one of his arguments is that not every book is worth reading. Um, and not every book, oh, and there may be books that are worth reading, but they're not worth reading well. And that that was a that was kind of a, a big, a big thing for my, you know, changing like my philosophy of how I, how I approach books. Uh, I don't have to dedicate myself to, you know, read a book if I, if I find it to be 
ridiculous just you know for the sake of you know like some sort of strange you know loyalty to like i've got to get through this you know kind of you know you know grit and resolve and stuff and like you can just be like oh no this this book is just not worth it you know it's not worth any more of my time and i'm gonna put it away and and move on to something else but uh another thing is it it kind of it reinforced like things maybe I'd learned in the past, but also taught me new things like his, so his uh, methods are more for non-narrative nonfiction books. And so he kind of goes through, you know, this is how, like, this would be like a surface level approach to the, to reading a book. And then here's the next step up and then the next step up after that. And you, you start at the surface just to make sure that, you find the book worth reading to begin with. And then, um, and then after that, if it's worth reading, if, if it's worth really like putting in the time to read it well. And he, he says that reading a book well requires at least two or three readings of the book. Uh, and the, the ultimate goal is to make, I guess he would say like, make the book your own. And that was another thing that really, uh, that really, uh, that really struck me. That really, like, really stuck with me is the the ability to take a work and realize that it's a it's the author speaking to you, the individual, and it's your responsibility, especially if he put something good, to respond back to it. Like you're having a conversation and um and to respond to it so well that in a sense like you're making the work your own like you're uh you're he, he uses i think he uses the phrase coming to terms with the book and uh basically it, it's basically the adage comes down to the adage of being able to repeat something that you've learned in your own words. That's when you know that you've learned something. And, and he kind of, that's basically the concept that he, that he, uh, that he teaches is if a book is worth reading well, you'll read it to the point to where you can then talk to someone about it in your own words. And you know, exactly like in this, you know, cause he's talking about non-narrative nonfiction you know exactly the argument the individual is making and you can be able to repeat that argument in your own words to someone else and you know it so well that uh your whether you agree or disagree with the argument is um it's it's well informed and um it and you've shown that you have met that author and uh, and have heard his argument out and have given it a lot of thought and consideration, then you can respond in kind. So it's kind of like, I, I, I we use a lot of terms, a lot of terms goes on in, in today's political discourse, like the whole straw man versus steel man mm. kind of thing. So if I were to use those terms, um, you, you can steel man the individual's argument, whether you agree or disagree with what they're trying to argue. Um, so... Yeah, and speaking of uh, 
putting things into your own words. You definitely did that with the Iliad, and uh, it, was, it was quite impressive. Um, and uh, so I have some questions on that. Uh, true. Uh, one thing that you mentioned a lot was uh, how you kind of saw... Uh, Achilles as he's the main character of the story, but he wasn't actually like in the story that much, but still he pervades kind of the whole story in a way. Can you kind of speak to um, what drew you to that observation and and uh... yeah, it was it was multiple things. The first is that the Iliad is about the anger of Achilles. It, it says that in the opening lines of of the poem. Um, I'll read here from the, the Fagel's translation. Um, by the way, if you want a, a modern translation of the Iliad, I highly recommend Robert Fagel's. Um, I've read just about everything he's translated and he's excellent. Um, he's an excellent translator. But the opening lines of, of the Iliad uh, reads, uh, Rage, goddess sing the rage of Peleus' son Achilles murderous doomed that cost the Achaeans countless losses hurling down to the house of death so many sturdy souls great fighters souls but made their bodies carry in feast for the dogs and birds and the will of Zeus was moving toward its end began muse when the two first broke and clashed Agamemnon lord of men and brilliant Achilles that's the that's what the whole poem is about uh the anger of Achilles and um and how it just how it uh wrought destruction on his own side but also also later on on the on the trojans itself and so when you get to the end of book one uh achilles has been humiliated so the story goes, he gets humiliated by Agamemnon. Agamemnon is the commander of the Achaean or Greek army. And he gets humiliated by him publicly. And Achilles responds by withdrawing himself and his army from the war. And he is so upset by this that he asks his mother, who's a sea goddess, to petition Zeus to say, uh, to uh, have the Achaeans lose against the Trojans until Agamemnon regrets humiliating him. And Zeus accepts the petition. And so you ha you come to that very end of the book and now now like now the story is set. And that's now in the back of your mind as you continue through the story. Um and uh and it's not until at first, it seems like everything is fine. Like, this is, like, typical, like, you know, typical drama. Like, everything just, you know, everything seems to be fine. And then the twist happens. And uh, the twist comes later on when, well, the twist first starts when it looks like the the war is going to end. And then it doesn't. Mm -hmm. they, so, like, the there's the duel between uh, Menelaus, who's the, who's the husband of Helen of Troy and Paris, who's the one who took, who, whom she ran off with. And there's a duel and Paris seems to have run away and they're like, okay, well, that's it. This is the end of the war. Like the, the promise of the duel is whoever won got Helen back and everybody goes home and everything is great. 
and uh, but that's not something the gods want and so they find a way to make the war happen again and uh and this whole time you you are thinking about this petition to achilles or this petition that achilles made to zeus it's like no the war can't end because of this and um and then the the sides begin to fight each other and they begin to fight each other and meanwhile like you meanwhile like the audience has is privy to information that the people on the on the ground in the story don't have and that's what the what the gods are doing in the background and um and it's it's there that we learn that you know Zeus is going to honor this petition and he's going to turn the turn the tide of the war around and um and uh and then he does it and he and and in this very spectacular fashion um he sends a lightning bolt down he scares off all the greeks and the trojans begin chasing them and they push them all the way back to the camp and um that's when they begin to realize that oh you know we're losing we need achilles and now it's come back full circle we need achilles back and achilles basically tells them to go pound sand and uh yeah, and so I, 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 if I remember what I wrote in the essay, like it, like yeah, the the that the anger of Achilles, it kind of it just permeates throughout the story, and it stays in the back of your mind, even if Achilles isn't around, it stays there, and um, and then it 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 culminates in this moment where the Tro the trojans have the achaeans uh pushed back to their camp and they've they're burning down one of their ships and and uh and it's like okay the the petition is complete um but it isn't and that's when you know that that's when like the tragedy happens uh you know achilles achilles's best friend begs him to go into the war and and lead their army and he reluctantly agrees, but tells them, don't leave the camp. Just push him out of the camp. That's it. And of course he doesn't, he doesn't listen. He pushes them all the way back to Troy and that's when he gets killed. And that's when the, uh, that's when the anger of Achilles like transforms into something else. It goes from just a man who is humiliated to a man who wants vengeance for his best friend. So I don't know if I answered that question sufficiently, but no, it was it, you. You laid it out uh, wonderfully, and one thing that you talked about was how uh, is it Pericles was his best friend, Patroclus. Patroclus, my bad. Uh, I think Pericles is a different Greek hero. Yeah, he is. <laughs> um, so uh, you talked about how uh, you know he kind of donned the mantle of of Achilles, but then he ended up uh, getting crushed by it in a sense, um, mm -hmm. and kind of. Uh, what the demand it, it goes to show like what the mantle of leadership is and i was wondering if you could kind of speak to uh you know that mantle of leadership and and how it was uh shown throughout the, the iliad yeah uh yeah leadership i i thought that was one of the major themes of the iliad was uh the way that these leaders were so like on the one hand you had agamemnon the commander of the Achaean army and 
we see very like you know we see like right in the first book like he's he's not this like very impressive guy like he uh he demands like uh so the story starts where he has a uh he has a war prize so like you know, like slight, you know, slight, people were taking as slaves back then, and women were taken as war prizes. And um, he had this particular war prize, who happened to be the daughter of a priest of Apollo. And the priest of Apollo comes to him as a suppliant and says, "Please give me my daughter back. I'll, you know, I'll provide compensation, that kind of thing." And um, the whole army is like, "Yeah, Agamemnon, you really should do this." And you know, this is a priest of Apollo here, and Agamemnon responds not only by saying, no, I'm not going to do it, but he, like, drives him out. Like, he treats him terribly, and the priest of Apollo prays to Apollo um, uh, for for justice, and Apollo does it. He, he sends a plague on the Achaean army, and so this whole episode is just kind of like uh you know we uh, agamemnon is not um is not like acting in this really positive way and then um and then the clincher is you know when they get to when when the council gets together and they're like hey you know why is this plague happening and and they're the the their prophet this you know very famous prophet in in uh in Greek legend, he says because you you spurned this you know, priest of Apollo. And uh, and the only way to to make amends is to give his daughter back. And Agamemnon is just absolutely incensed about this. Like, uh, he throws a basically throws a tantrum. He's like, well, if I have to do that for the sake of the army, I I want like immediate compensation right now. And Achilles is. Hey, you know, hold off on that. Wait until, you know, we sack Troy and we'll give you like the choicest of the choice. And Agamemnon's like, no, I want compensation right now. And in fact, because, you know, you spoke up, you know, maybe I'll take yours away. And that's what started the feud between the two. And so you see like this, you see Agamemnon just acting very, very petty and um it doesn't get any better like you basically like he just he makes all of these really like what i believe are really like dumb decisions and then as soon as he starts losing to the trojans he gets so demoralized that he's like oh man maybe we should just go home and odysseus is like hey don't say that out loud what you're the commander of the army you know don't say stuff like that out loud you're going to you're, you're going to cause a, a really bad situation and um there's even like so there's a line um, at the point where the Trojans have pushed them all the way, uh, the, the Greeks all the way back to the camp, that people just stopped fighting uh, because they have completely lost faith in Agamemnon's leadership. And so it's like, <clears throat> here you have this guy. He's the he's the the brother of he's the brother of Menelaus, uh, the husband of Troy, and uh, he's the commander. For some reason, he's the commander of the army, and like his leadership just completely falls apart. Um, and so it's like, you know, you have this guy who it doesn't seem like he should be the one in charge, but then you, you see, uh, you see someone like Odysseus um, who seems to just like keeps like stepping in and like 
making up for Agamemnon's mistake. So like Agamemnon puts the uh, the army through a really stupid test, and um, and it ends up going completely sideways. And Odysseus is the one that steps up and he has this like he gives this grand speech to the army. And he's like, hey, you know, like, you know, let, let's all calm down. You know, I know you want to get home and, uh, you know, but just you know, just hang on a little bit longer. You know, remember, we got this like we, it's prophesied that we're going to win. We got this, you know, just hold on. You know, I'm I feel you. We, uh, you know, you want to get back home to your families, but, you know, just just a little bit longer. Just a little bit longer. Remember, 10 years was how long the war last is supposed to last. We're in that last year. We're in that final stretch. Let's just keep going. And he just keeps on making up for Agamemnon's faults throughout the whole poem to the point where when uh, Agamemnon and Achilles are reconciling, Odysseus is like, okay, Agamemnon, this is how you're going to do it. Like, you're going to apologize. You're going to do it publicly. You're going to uh, give uh, Agamemnon or uh, Achilles' um, war prize back, and you're going to do it publicly. All the things that you promised to give him earlier, you're going to do that, and you're going to do that publicly. And then you're going to invite him to your tent, and you're going to have a feast. And it's, you know, you're like, this is exactly what you're going to do. Oh, and by the way, next time when you do something wrong, just apologize. You know, it's not wrong for a leader to apologize, all right? And uh, and then and then uh, Odysseus gives Achilles both barrels also, and uh, and so like Odysseus, I saw as like an example of of a of a really good leader, and yeah, and if you read uh, if you read the Odyssey, and uh, you read some other literature, like Agamemnon and Odysseus have this really really odd relationship. Um, and, uh, yeah, like they, they really respect each other, but you wouldn't expect it. And the audit, like, like in the Odyssey, they, they get compared and contrasted quite a bit. Um, and the reason why I say all that is because, uh, if in the, uh, in the, uh, in the traditions, if you look at other accounts, um, when Agamemnon and Menelaus went to recruit Odysseus, Odysseus didn't want to go. Like he's just newly married. He just had, he just, you know, his first son, Telemachus, was just born. He didn't want to go to war. And so he pretended to, to have been uh, gone insane. And so he, he hooks a, um, he hooks an oxen and a mule together on a, um, uh, on a, on a plow. And he uh, he plants salt in the ground. He begins to, you know, begins to till the ground. And they're like, "What on earth is going on with this guy?" And uh, someone in Agamemnon's retinue um, was like, "I, you know what? I bet he's faking it. Let's let's see if he's let's see if he is." And so he takes Telemachus, his baby, his baby boy, and puts him in front of the cart or in front of the front of the plow. And Odysseus is forced to move the plow out of the way. And thus proving that he wasn't insane. And so he was forced to join the war effort. But once he joined the war effort, like he was their he was like one of their most committed leaders. Like he gave it a hundred and ten percent and Agamemnon respected him for it. And for some reason, like Odysseus respected Agamemnon. Um, this is explored a lot in uh in the Odyssey and 
um, in a little bit and and some other and some other works. But yeah, it's it's really yeah. So um, I also have to say is that yeah, I saw a lot of instances of good and bad leadership within the Iliad, and um, and I have to wonder like if that was intentional, like if that was something that Homer intentionally meant to do. Um, but I, regardless, I, I just, I just saw those two as like, those are two very different, um, examples of leadership. And then what was more interesting is they continue to be compared and contrasted in the Odyssey. Uh, something I kind of noticed about the story or things that you'd mentioned about it is it's very different, um, tale than what we normally tell today. So I was wondering, uh, if there could be even a story made today um, that's like the Iliad, uh, just because of our various cultural um, biases or, or just maybe there's not even the talent out there that could write something like that and what your thoughts are of, of that kind of story and narrative. Sorry, are you asking, like, um, how how could how could the how could the Iliad be like made today? Like, how could it be like? Yeah, made not into necessarily a the story? Iliad, but like the 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 style in which it's written, where it's um you know the the pe the main people you're following aren't necessarily the good guys. There isn't this um normal split between good and bad like there is in so many modern movies and stuff like that. A lot of it probably comes because of like a uh, a lot of the Christian influence and stuff like that, which you in older t uh, tales you don't necessarily see as much. It's kind of interesting, uh, I find, um, but you don't you don't see that as much. And I'm I'm wondering if uh, that kind of story could be made today. Hmm. I I think that I think that today a, a story like that would be easier to make. I mean, I I mean, I I would be curious about your opinion about this, but doesn't it seem like? more more stories today more tv shows more movies like they they tend to they tend to want to uh give the bad guy so-called uh like a backstory in order mm -hmm. to sympathize with him um that's that seems to be happening a lot more today like there's not like a like a clear cut like this guy is truly evil you know a la like uh sauron in the lord of the rings or yeah um, you know that kind of thing so it seemed like it seems like something like that would be in that in that particular instance I think it would be easier to do today um, I think um, I think what would be difficult I mean just thinking about just thinking about the current year, I think what would be difficult would be to make the Iliad, you know, to tell the story of, say, the Iliad without injecting some sort of, you know, political commentary or, or trying to qualify, you know, trying to qualify something or, or, uh, you know, like, for example, like I talked about earlier, like, it was part of warfare to, you know, when you captured a, a city or something like that, or you captured a people, you would take, take them on as slaves, especially, you know, you would, you would also take like women as war prizes. They would become your, 
your your maid servants or your concubines or something like that and it, i i think that the like modern storytelling today would have difficulties presenting something like that without either uh without either some sort of commentary about how you know bad it was uh or changing it you know changing that aspect of the story altogether mm -hmm. uh or just leaving it out um rather than just presenting it as like well this was the reality mm -hmm. whether we you know whether we you know we could agree or disagree with it but this was kind of the historical reality of you know greek you know like uh ancient warfare 2800 or, or um yeah 2800 years ago uh i think that would be the most difficult part of storytelling today um but in terms of telling the story in you know where there's no clear cut good guys or bad guys i think that would be you know i you know i'd be curious to to know what you think about that but i think it would be easier today compared to even say even say like you know 20 or 30 years ago yeah i it definitely like there's aspects of like game of thrones is probably a good example but like a lot of what they do with modern ones like cruella and things like that is they almost make the bad guy the good guy like so they just invert it and it's not necessarily like so there's still the distinction they just like flip-flop the roles basically I see. and yeah and homer's it's been a while since i've kind of read it and i haven't i don't think i've read any official ones but I've, I've gotten it through various osmosis and, and renditions that i've seen is uh from what i understand is he's got more of a deft hand of like and and is better at dealing with shades of gray and stuff like that like you know uh you know achilles like basically embodies rage and things like that and, and it's not makes most of his characters while they when we put them on our uh moral frame there's good and bad there but it's written as just like this is kind of how they are and there's no moral uh assumption put on any of the characters it's just having them act in the way that they act right okay yeah yeah i see what you mean yeah yeah definitely um yeah i i agree with you like they they, they just are that they are they just are how they are it's almost like here's this you know here's this character here's their strengths here's their flaws now let's put them in a situation and see, you know, it's, it's like, it's kind of like, uh, you know, we have situational comedy. This is like situational drama or situational tragedy. You know, this is the kind of person that they are. Let's put them in this situation. And, um, and the, you know, this is how they'll act well. And this is how they'll not act at, you know, at all when presented with different situations. And, um, and, you know, uh, you even, I, I would say like more than anything else, the character that Homer seems to have you most sympathize with is Hector, uh, the Trojan prince. Uh, he's he's the Trojans' best warrior. Um, he's, you know, everybody likes him. Whereas like everybody hates his brother Paris because, you know, because he took, you know, Helen away and, and brought this war upon them. And he Hector and, and it's probably just because like uh, because they're at you know the setting like takes place at Troy like at you know right before the 
the walls of Troy, but like Hector is the only character that you see him with his family. You know, you see him talk with his, you know, you see him talk with his wife and you see him interact with his, his infant son and you see him talk with his mother. Though strangely, you know, there's not, you know, there's no, that I remember, there's no like scenes where he talks with his father and uh, the, the king of Troy. But like Hector is this very sympathetic character um, and probably more sympathetic than just about every other character in the Iliad. And he's a Trojan, but that's just the kind of person that he is. Like he's this very noble person. And you and when you get late into the story, you start seeing his flaws come out. Like he uh, he kind of lets like the like the battle lust kind of kind of get the best of him and he starts making bad decisions you know like they're they're camped out before they're camped out before the the uh the Achaean camp and one of his advisors is like hey you know we've done a lot of damage to them let's just go back to Troy and Hector's like no 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 we got this you know like we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna keep going and we're going to um we're going to wipe these people off the map and they won't be a bother to us anymore. And he gets, you know, he gets really angry at the advisor for suggesting such a thing. And well, then the, you know, the, the, the next scene is Achilles coming out onto the battlefield and, and laying waste, uh, you know, laying waste to the Trojan army. You know, uh, Hector let the, his victory over Patroclus and taking Achilles' armor from him, like, get over, you know, get in his head. And um, and he ends up paying a price for it. And when he realizes that he made this terrible mistake, you see, uh, you know, you see this really, like, uh, uh, this really gut-wrenching scene where he's uh, he's standing outside the walls of Troy and he's ushering, you know, people back in. And meanwhile, his mother is up there at the top screaming at him, like telling him, get inside the walls, get inside the walls. And he's like, I can't, I'm, you know, I, it would, it would, um, it would hurt my honor if I, if I did that now, if I retreated now when all of this is my fault. And I have to wonder if he kind of instinctually also knew that Achilles was after him. And if he, uh, if he went inside the walls of Troy um, then the people of Troy and especially his family would be, uh, would be in jeopardy because, you know, with the way that Achilles was, he was just like this force of nature, this one man army. And, um, if he had to go within the walls of Troy to get Hector, Hector was probably afraid that he was going to do just that. And who knows what would have happened to, uh, you know, his father and his mother and his wife and the the people of Troy that he has sworn to protect. And so maybe, and like, I wonder, like, if that was also going through his head. Um, but, uh, and so he, uh, you know, he, he decides to wait outside and Achilles catches up with him and, um, and eventually kills him. But uh, yeah, so it's, It, it, yeah, I, it would be, it would be interesting to to make a story like that. Um, you know, where, like you said, like you're not, you're not taking a bad guy and kind of inverting them to make them sympathetic or, um, 
or or like a um or like a game of thrones kind of scenario where it's kind of like everyone sucks um uh, that i that i understand i haven't seen game of thrones but the impression i get is that everyone sucks and um and that the author was trying to be some sort of you know some sort of like uh some sort of like anti-tolkien or you know he, he's it sounds very nihilistic to be honest but uh what little i understand of the game of thrones uh universe but um yeah to be able to be able to make a story i kind of see your point now like to be able to make a story where it's like here's the story um and these are just characters with their with their flaws and with their good you know with their with their their strong points or their, their moral morally good points and their and their flaws and now they're in a situation and let's see how things work out you know you have people on one side and people on the other and it would be interesting to see you know hey audience what's your opinion you know which mm -hmm. side do you like more um yeah. and so yeah that would be uh, that would be a pretty interesting concept um so for any aspiring writers out there you got your your idea yeah <laughs> um so uh a lot of the stuff that they talk about in the um oh actually a better question is so you talked about uh hector uh being a very interesting character and uh and achilles and stuff like that uh do you have a favorite character from the odyssey uh, from the Iliad, um, or sorry, <laughs> yeah, um, I could talk about the Odyssey too, but uh, yeah, um, the Iliad. Do I have a favorite character? Oh man, um, yeah, I really, I mean, I really liked how how Hector is presented in in the story, but um, man, that's tough. I would say. I would say Diomedes was probably my favorite character and Odysseus is a very close second, even though like my, my impression of Odysseus got tarnished a little bit in the Odyssey because of some of the decisions he made. And that's just like a, that's just like me, like making a, a moral decision on, on Odysseus's character. But, um, Odysseus like was a really good, like, I think was a, thought was like a really solid like leader solid character in the Iliad but I think Diomedes was like was awesome um and uh so he, he, Diomedes is probably even less of a known character um than than the others but he nonetheless like you know he has quite a bit of uh time devoted to him in the poem like there's a whole chapter pretty much devoted to him like being on the battlefield um, but he's uh, so Diomedes is the son of uh, the son of Tydeus, and Tydeus was a man who fought in a famous battle uh, before the Trojan War, um, uh, and um, it would take some time to to kind of talk about that battle. But uh, basically, his father fought in this famous battle before the Trojan War, like years ago, years before, and died in that battle. And um, what's interesting is that the uh, the poem keeps bringing up this fact that Diomedes is the son of this of Tydeus, this great warrior. And you know, you you know, 
know, Tidius, you know, if Tidius were here, he would have, you know, he would have been this way and that way, like, you know, and, and Daimi is just getting constant reminders, constant comparisons to his father. And so, like, you, you kind of get the sense that maybe, like, Diomedes has this chip on his shoulder uh, concerning his dad, but uh, he's, like, you know, aside from, aside from, like, Achilles and maybe, uh, and maybe uh, Telamonian Ajax, um, he's, like, you know, one of, like, the, the best warriors that they have, and um, he, ha he shows, uh, he shows, like, a, a, a level of courage that none of the other leaders had, not, you know, not even Ajax, not even Odysseus, um, there's a there's one scene, uh, the 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 point where Zeus decides it's time to honor Achilles' petition, and cause the Achaeans to start losing the war, and he sits he sits down on the on the mountain uh, Mount Ida, uh, near where the battle is going on, and um, there's like this big dramatic scene, and. Um, his you know the favor falls in with the trojans and he sends a lightning bolt down onto the battlefield and it freaks out the achaeans and they began running the other direction well there is one guy that not only did not run away he ran toward the action and that was diomedes the um uh so one of the other warriors uh nestor He's the king of Pylos. He's also he's also a character in the Odyssey. He's the king of Pylos. He's this old man, um, unable to fight because he's you know he's old. But he nonetheless went with his army uh, to Troy and um, served as more of an advisory role, as kind of like the you know kind of like the wise old man. Although he, in my opinion, served more as comedic relief than anything else throughout the story you know, kind of one of those typical, you know, back in my day kind of, uh, kind of character. Um, but Nestor is stranded on the battlefield. You know, everybody has run away and Nestor is in his chariot. He's stranded. And um, so Diomedes like charges right into the battle and um, gets on Nestor's chariot. And he's like, you know what? I'm not scared. Let's do this. And Nestor's like, all right, let's do this. And so they charge at the Trojans again and Zeus sends another lightning bolt down and um and Nestor's like uh you know on second thought I like your gumption but we should probably leave <laughs> and Diomedes doesn't want to and um I think it I think the the text is something like three times Diomedes went and you know went and charged in and and three times uh Zeus sent a lightning bolt and finally he's like you know he conceded and uh and left but you know like that's something that diomedes could boast about that none of the other achaeans not even like telemonian ajax you know telemonian ajax ran and he was one of the few characters in the iliad that didn't get injured like he's like this big brawny guy who carries this giant shield and um you know he was brave in his own right but diomedes was the only one that saw like zeus throwing down lightning bolts and he's like Psh whatever you know i got this i'm gonna you know i'm not scared of some, some little lightning bolt sent by the king of the gods let's do this and um it, it was it was basically nestor's counsel that you know in his respect for nestor that's like oh you know fine i'll do this but you know i'm gonna 
um, you know, I'm probably not going to hear the end of this and uh, I'm going to, uh, you know, I'm probably going to get, I'm probably going to get humiliated for this, for running away. Like, I don't want to be made a coward. And, and of course, like that, the reason why he kept coming back, at, you know, after the Trojans is because uh, Hector kept on um, heckling him. Like, ooh, look at that, the coward running away. And, and Dionysus, <laughs> like, I'm sorry, what'd you say? And, like, you know, went after him again. And then Zeus sends another lightning bolt. And then, you know, Hector, like, uh, Hector, like, you know, goes after him again. And anyway, it's, so it's kind of a funny scene. But, uh, but yeah, so, like, Diomedes is, like, he's just, just this great character. And um, there's one point in the story, I believe, uh, I, I can't. Uh, I, I don't think it's. I don't think it's after. Um, it may may have been after um, the the. Okay, yeah, it was after um, the whole scene with the lightning bolts. Um, they want to. Agamemnon wants to send some spies into the Trojan camp. Um, to see if they can learn anything, and Diomedes is the first one to volunteer for it. And um, he picks uh, he picks Odysseus as his partner to go and infiltrate this camp. Um, but uh, but yeah, so like Diomedes is just this, it's just like this great character who shows just an uncanny amount of courage. Um, and uh, while at while at the same time, like it seems like he has you know he, he feels like it seems like he feels he has something that he needs to prove, being compared to his father and. Um, um, he doesn't take, uh, he doesn't take like being humiliated, you know, lying down and, um, he even like calls out Agamemnon at one point. It's like, Hey, you know, when Agamemnon, one of the times that Agamemnon wanted to call it quits and actually leave the war after being demoralized and Diomedes is like, you know, you called me out in front of everyone for, you know, uh, you know, for, for, it was, I don't know if it was for cowardice or, you know, not being prepared enough to go into battle. He's like, and now you're turning around and you're saying this kind of nonsense. I'm like, you know, no, you know, I don't care what you do, but I'm going to keep on fighting. Um, so, yeah. So anyway, yeah, I, I would say like Diomedes is probably my favorite character. And with Odysseus being a very close second and Hector being a cl very close third, they're, I mean, I, I put him in first, second, and third place, but like the, um, like the the amount of difference between how much I like each of them are are very very, it's very very like, very slim. Um, so. Yeah, it's it's interesting to see how much honor seems to play a role in the uh, the story because, you know, they're the Achaeans are basically on Troy's doorstep. And Troy has, like, legendarily large walls that can't be penetrated. And yet they still are like, let's, like, not use our walls and, like, go and fight them on an open battlefield. Yeah. Yeah, that, it, that's, that is a very interesting thing that, I, that I've, I think about sometimes. This whole, this whole concept of honor that is, at least to me, is, is foreign uh to some degree like just you know uh, being uh 
feeling bound or obligated to act a certain way, even if it's to your disadvantage, uh, being um, uh, you know you, be, you know believing a certain way or saying certain things, you know, like you like you know that you know that certain actions and certain words, even if they're not necessarily violent could lead to violence and um yeah I, it's just it's just so such it's such an interesting thing that we just don't have anymore and i don't know if that's to our if that's a good thing or if it's to our detriment that we don't have this kind of concept of honor that we would never, that we would never dare, uh, approach someone a certain way, or uh, you know, um, or else, or say certain things to them, or else, the response would be, uh, you know, like a life or death situation, or, um, or 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 even social suicide. It's just it seems like a lot of those a lot of those uh, mm, a lot of those things i don't know what the what the call is specifically but they have been kind of removed um like i wonder if maybe like the 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 way the the the, the lengths or the depths in which we've taken like free speech for example uh, if that has has played a role in it, um, uh, it's definitely or, cultural aspects. I mean, yet, yeah. uh, was it? Andrew Jackson like dueled like twenty people in his life or something. So like, there was still some aspect of that in the early American uh, culture. Yeah, I'm I'm thinking more of like, I don't know what you I don't know what you say. The last fifty sixty years, like, it seems to be a. Um, I don't know, maybe something from like this from the sixties or seventies onward, like this kind of whole idea of honor being like the uh the um um we what do you call it? The revering honor seems to seems to diminish. Yeah. Um yeah, uh Seems to be a, th a theme with decadent societies. Yeah, decadent societies and um, maybe maybe like uh, maybe even like learning or education maybe plays a part of it in the sense of um, what was I going to say on that? Your, uh, uh, your video cut out. Oh, did it? Yeah. Um. There we go. Uh. Like uh, our learning has reached a point where maybe we feel like we're above all of that. Like only, you know, only certain, you know, 
only certain people or, or certain, you know, lesser developed societies still have that kind of stuff. But, you know, we're more, we're more civilized. So we're going to do things differently. And so we don't need something like an honor system um, or, um, or maybe it's, you know, maybe it's how increasingly I don't know if nihilistic would be the proper word, but just um, oh, what's that? What's that term? Um, it's not not nihilistic. It's not apathetic. Fatalistic. Uh, it's oh man, the word just the, the word just uh. The word just left my uh, left yeah. me. Um, I'm sure but, we'll catch it. Yeah, uh, but I mean, uh, kind of like a uh, you know just that kind of uh, that kind of attitude of um, you know kind of a like a, a yeah whatever I'm too cool for it kind of attitude and um, uh, uh, like you know like and. and you just you know we're 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 above that and um and they just mock it and mm -hmm. uh but anyway yeah i but anyway i i i think about i think about that honor sometimes and um i can't decide if if it's a good thing or a bad thing that we don't have something like that anymore it sounds like on the one hand it sounds exhausting uh, but on the <laughs> other hand uh, it's like, well, maybe that's, that's what kept people, that's what kept people civilized. That's what kept people from, I mean, it's what kept people from going down paths that maybe we shouldn't go down. Okay. You know, that kind of thing. I don't know. Yeah. So another thing that's very different, I'm thinking is how the greeks like viewed war so how how is that different from uh how we see things today mm, i'm not sure if i can entirely speak about how greeks viewed war they seem uh just because i don't know i don't know a whole lot about greek culture it seemed to just be like just another part of life and they seem to you know like much like how we do today they they distinguish acts of violence and war from acts of violence outside of war, you know. Maybe a better way to say it is how does the Iliad, uh, what does the Iliad say about war? Oh, yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so there, I know that there are, uh, I don't, maybe scholars, but definitely a lot of individuals out there that believe that Homer is trying to present maybe an anti-war message. And I can see where they come, you know, I can see where they come from in that because there's a lot of uh, descriptions of uh, people being, you know, like brutally killed, and and then like Homer provides these really brief backstories about their life. You know, they were the only son of this couple, or and, or this person was just newlywed, or this man was a really kind person and uh, had a lot of friends and um, was very generous and you know, now he's dead. And, um, there's a, there's a state, you know, there's something that, um, 
he he writes at the end of book four when all the war start when all the fighting starts and um at the very end of book four he's uh homer writes um and now no man would have made light of the fighting if he could have gone about among scatheless and unwounded with Athena leading him by the hand and protecting him from the storm of spears and arrows for many Trojans and Achaeans on that day lay stretched side by side downwards upon the earth. Kind of like a, you know, this is how awful the fighting was. And at the end of the day, at the, you know, when this, you know, when all the fighting was over, uh, the Achaeans and the Trojans, they were both the same, you know, they were both people, you know, they were both men who were just lying there dead you know, in death, they were no different from each other. Um, so I kind of see how people would uh, maybe get that maybe Homer has some sort of anti-war message. But I think that, uh, I think more realistically is that Homer is just trying to tell a really good story. And uh, a lot of these things were told for dramatic effect. Um, and uh, he also wasn't, you know, if he was, you know, regardless of whether he was pro-war or anti-war, I don't know if I don't know if those like concepts even existed, you know, at that time, um, or if they really meant anything. But uh, regardless of which side of the you know which side that he was on, when it, regarding war, um, he seemed more uh, he seemed more. concerned about telling a good story and he didn't pull his punches when it came to like the good, the bad and the ugly with war. He's like, on the one hand, you can go into war and you can read it uh, when renowned for yourself and when fame and you can, um, you can get plunder and you can get war prizes and, um, you know, you can, you know, it can increase your social status and, you know, you can get all these really good things, um, but you could also die uh, brutally and uh, unflatteringly on the battlefield with your guts spilled on the ground and, you know, reaching out, you know, reaching out and, and crying for, you know, your loved ones as, you know, the breath of life escapes your lips. And, uh, you know, so like he was, he he showed the full aspect of war. He was not, he was first and foremost a storyteller um, and not a propagandist. And um, so I think that, you know, regardless of whether he had a pro or anti-war message, I think it would be really difficult to, um, it would be really difficult to determine, but I, like I said, I do understand why people think that he had an anti-war message, just of, you know, just how, you know, these, these gut-wrenching stories. And um, he was some, uh, he was definitely someone who was intimately familiar with how weapons damaged a human body. Um, and, uh, but um, anyway, it just seemed like, you know, with the with the familiarity he had with it, like either Homer like knew war himself, or like like battles and skirmishes and stuff like that was just a a normal part of life. You know, where you know in the in the world that he lived in, 
um and it was just like you know it was just like a reality just like us getting up in the morning and going to work and going to the grocery store to get food for us you know or or you know to a restaurant and getting food you know just how common those things are today you know maybe war was something that you know or or battle was something common to you know to his reality in his day um so all right well i would love to keep talking to you for hours and hours but uh we probably gotta wrap up here and the uh, zoom call is gonna be kicking us off soon so uh why don't you tell people where they can find you uh and about your book and we'll wrap up yeah uh so my um my blog uh i uh, i write on substack so it's uh wens of change w e n d s of change.substack.com uh or my website where i also put blog posts uh www.wensofchange.com that again w e n d s um my first book my book on the iliad is called uh, revenge and its discontents my journey through the Iliad. And I also just recently published one on the Odyssey and I don't have a physical copy yet. Um, it's called 1001 Nights of the Soul, my journey through uh, the Odyssey. And um, I am currently, I, you know, I, like I said, I finished up the Odyssey. I'm now going through the plays of Aeschylus who is the father of Greek tragedy. And I'm starting with his famous uh, trilogy called the Oresteia. So, um, yep, that's where, uh, th those are the, those are the two places you can find me and my books can be found on Amazon. Just look up Andronicus, Revenge and Discontents, or, or I'll put all the, all the links in the description for people, um, so that it makes it easy for them to find it and, uh, you can follow along and, uh, that maybe inspires some people to, uh, have some books to read along with and, and have, uh. Uh, additional things to read along with uh, i've read the blog it's it's fantastic it's well written so definitely recommend for uh for people um but i'll let you have the last word yeah um i i encourage everyone to read uh read well for the iliad everyone should read the iliad um you can do it um it is completely within your ability to do it um the only the only thing that's standing between you and reading it is your willingness to do it and your your um, your willingness to meet the the, the work face to face. Um, so uh, yeah, it's it's not it's not beyond your grasp just because it was written 2,800 years ago. Find a good modern translation like Robert Fagel's um, if you're concerned about that. But there's also some good public domain translations you can read for free. Um, you can read like the Samuel Butler translation. That's what I used. So um, Samuel Butler is a good place uh, to start also. But uh, um, yeah, so uh, don't don't think don't think that you can't read the Iliad. You can.